Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another live edition of Monitor Monday. And we begin with an important legal question. Could disallowing an appeal process for a decrease in Medicare payments be unconstitutional? Healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel standing by with our lead story. In other news, the countdown has started for inpatient rehabilitation facility providers. One of the country's foremost IRF authorities, Angela Phillips, will explain the urgency. Three major pharmaceutical companies have agreed to pay $122.6 million to resolve allegations of False Claims Act violations. Famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman will be calling in live from London with the details. Also in today's Monitor Monday, the American Hospital Association and the National Quality Forum announced new guidelines for telebehavioral health. Kathy Seward will be reporting this developing story. And healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hurts, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 RCM. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. I received a great question last week, and I thought I'd share it here. The case management manager contacted me and wanted to know how to determine status for a patient who came into the ED and was felt unlikely to live past 24 hours. She raised some valid concerns, the cost to the family, the burden of the Medicare-required notification, and the effect on their mortality measures. So let me address each one. As far as cost, she was concerned since this patient had a prior admission within the last month that observation would impose costs that would not be incurred with an inpatient admission. She's right. Since there was a prior inpatient admission within 60 days, there is no Part A deductible for this admission. But can we use the cost to the beneficiary as a factor when determining which status to choose? Absolutely not. Even if the status you choose results in a lower payment to the hospital, that is still not allowed. Second, she was concerned if observation was chosen that they would have to provide the moon, which talks about co-payments and nursing home eligibility, and that would be a little awkward. Well, it certainly would be uncomfortable, but remember, the moon is not required until 24 hours after observation has started, so they don't really have to give the moon in the ED, and they can wait and see if the patient survives 24 hours. They should also remember that the, every inpatient gets the important message from Medicare. Right? That doesn't require an oral explanation. But what if the family asks what they're signing? It'll be equally awkward to tell them this form gives them the information on appealing if they feel their loved one's discharge is premature. The third concern is mortality. If a patient is admitted as an inpatient and dies, it gets reported as an in-hospital death, whereas the death of an observation patient is not counted. Now, we all hate hospital applications and deaths, but you should really hate those on observation patients that result in an inpatient admission a little less, since these are get to be reported as present on admission. And present on admission equals yes, diagnoses are not considered hospital acquired. That means if an inpatient falls and breaks a hip, it's your fault. But if an ops patient falls and breaks their hips, 
it's not your fault. But remember that mortality measures are not based on an absolute rate. It's based on the expected versus, versus the observed. So a patient who comes in the hospital and is likely to die will probably score out as an expected death, not influencing your mortality score. So with all that, how should she determine the status of this patient? Well, it depends on the treatment plan. If the plan is comfort care while they transition to the, pa the patient to hospice, then observation is right. There is no two midnight expectation. But if the family wants active treatment and the doctor orders it, then inpatient admission is warranted. The treatment is being ordered expecting it to work and get the patient past the second midnight. So once again, the answer is to follow the rules and don't worry about the fallout. Doing anything else just creates mayhem. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, the American Hospital Association and the National Quality Forum last week announced new guidelines for telebehavioral health. Here now reporting that developing story is Dr. Kathy Seward. Good morning, Kathy. Welcome to the broadcast. Thanks, Chuck. That's right. The American Hospital Association, in partnership with the National Quality Forum, just released a how-to guide for hospitals and health systems needing to implement, strengthen, and sustain telebehavioral health programs. This guide is an excellent framework for those contemplating building their own telebehavioral health capabilities. But there are fundamental questions that you need to ask before embarking on such a significant investment in time, people, and resources. So ask yourself, will telebehavioral health help alleviate many of your clinical, financial, or operational issues? The answer is probably maybe. Success is largely dependent on how thoroughly you assess your current state and pinpoint areas where telebehavioral health can make the biggest impact on your patients and your clinical operations. You will also need to know what measurable improvements can reasonably be expected and how telebehavioral health will be incorporated into your clinical workflow. Again, success depends entirely on execution. The devil is in the details. The good news, this new guide from the AHA and the National Quality Forum effectively articulates many of the challenges hospitals and health systems are currently facing as a result of the nationwide shortage of behavioral health professionals and especially the shortage of psychiatrists. The primary challenge, however, is that patients do not have access to swift, appropriate care for their behavioral health needs. Having psychiatric patients placed in beds in the ED, plus bloated length of stay, both in the ED and hospital-wide, and stress on staff who may not have access to the resources required to appropriately care for these patients are daunting challenges. But this new guide suggests a possible solution, and that solution is telebehavioral health. Moreover, the guide offers a framework that your facility can use to build a successful telebehavioral health program. It's a framework that touches on all the right considerations, leadership commitment, operational and clinical workflow, training and measurement among them. Those of us in the physician advisor world who view everything through the lens of improving clinical workflow and direct patient care clearly believe that hospitals and health systems that afford these fundamentals their appropriate time and attention will inherently address and alleviate these challenges 
and in doing so, will improve quality and outcomes, reduce length of stay, and eliminate psychiatric boarding in the ED. And there's even more good news. Telebehavioral health could improve the bottom line. While our focus is always the patient, another primary consideration is financial, and one must understand the details of the telebehavioral health reimbursement model to ensure proper payment for the quality care that is delivered, and more broadly recognize how much revenue is lost when psychiatric patients are boarded in the ED simply because there's no one available to treat them. This essential new guide from the AHA and the National Quality Forum certainly provides a sound framework and articulates the key work streams required to create a successful, robust telebehavioral health program at your facility. Chuck? Thank you, Dr. Seward. That was Dr. Kathy Seward. Dr. Seward is the Chief Medical Officer for Clear Solutions. That's a telemedicine company providing psychiatric care to patients throughout the United States. By the way, you can read her story in this Thursday's edition of the Rack Monitor News. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour of your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Angela Phillips, Mary Inman, and Nicole Emanuel. This is Monday, it's April the 15th. It's Income Tax Day, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Do you feel you are all alone fighting clinical validation denials? If so, here's important information from Rack University. There is a must-see webcast about how a team approach is necessary when appealing clinical validation denials. You'll learn that the team approach should include CDI and coding professionals, your contracting team, and physician advisors. If your appeals team does not include all of these players, your process is not as optimized as it can be. So join us this coming Thursday, April 18th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Dr. Julia Tugarte-Hopkins will demonstrate why a team approach is necessary when fighting clinical validation denials. To register, go to the handout tab in today's Monitor Monday. And remember, you can save $40 when you register by simply entering the coupon code MONDAY. Thanks, Clark. And a reminder about the Auditor Monitor. Each quarter, the Auditor Monitor will be delivered to your email box, and you'll receive concise, must-read analysis of the latest activities by the recovery audit contractors. It's a resource intended to save you and your facility time and money. And now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business segment, here is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, good morning, and what could be risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. So at the end of last week's broadcast, I made the statement that you should never have a patient in observation for more than two midnights. I received a very thoughtful email from Dr. Bruce Ehrman. He noted that there was ever a system-based delay in diagnostic testing, and it would be medically appropriate to discharge the patient prior to the second midnight if the delayed test had occurred and been reassuring. It might not be appropriate to bill for an inpatient admission. He cited the example of a patient admitted on a Saturday with chest pain when no nuclear medicine stress testing is available at the hospital on Sunday. Bruce raises a really interesting question. There's certainly an argument he's correct. In fact, I first was certain he was, but now I'm not as sure. This is a question that's bothered me for 10 years. Now, Emily, if you could uh, post Medicare Benefit Policy Manual Chapter 1, the inpatient hospital services, you can see the language on this screen. It reads, however, the decision to admit a patient is a complex medical judgment, which can be made only after the patient has considered a number of factors, including the patient's medical history and current medical needs, the types of facilities available to inpatients and to outpatients, the hospital's bylaws and admission policies, and the relative appropriateness of treatment in each setting. 
Factors to be considered when making the decision, making, uh, decision to admit the patient include things such as the severity of signs and symptoms exhibited by the patient, the medical predictability of something adverse happening to the patient, and here's the biggie, the need for diagnostic studies that are appropriately are outpatient services, i.e. their performance does not ordinarily require the patient to remain at the hospital for 24 hours or more to assist in assessing whether the patient should be admitted, and then the availability of diagnostic procedures at the time when and at the location where the patient presents. Now, this drafting is terrible. While it's clear that the availability of diagnostic procedures is a factor in determining whether the patient is an inpatient, it is utterly unclear how it matters. Does the availability of testing justify admission? Does the lack of availability justify an admission? Or does it render an admission unnecessary? It is utterly impossible to discern the intent of this jumble of words. Now, I certainly understand Bruce's point. And if there's a way to provide care that would allow a patient to leave before two midnights and the hospital didn't do it, I can see an argument that it's medically unnecessary to keep the patient in. But I can construct a compelling counterargument. The patient couldn't be appropriately discharged before the nuclear medicine test was administered. There isn't a general expectation that all care is provided immediately. Think about this in a different context. You've got three patients who need a CT. The third patient has to wait for the other two patients and may spend an extra couple of hours in observation as a result. Is there any sense that you're supposed to exclude this wait time when billing for observation services? I don't think anyone would make that argument. Um, is the fact that the scanner is in use different from the fact that techs weren't scheduled to work that day? Before you say yes, because the hospital chose not to schedule people on Sunday, well, the hospital chose not to have two scanners. This one's hard. Bruce's point is sound, but it's not dispositive. And I just want to say I love getting these well-thought-out emails, so I want to thank Bruce for sending me the note. Bruce included some sage advice in his email. Never say never. Now, there's a Romeo Void song with that very title, and I could have put it here, but it's a bit grating. And I don't know if I've ever used a song by heart, but, you know, it's Heart Monitor Monday. So dare I say I've never done that, and so let's go with Never from Heart. Thanks very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Three major pharmaceutical companies have agreed to pay $122.6 million to resolve allegations of False Claims Act violations. Calling in live from London is famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman, who joins us now with the latest news on this major story. Good morning, Mary. Good morning to you, Chuck. Earlier this month, three pharmaceutical companies, Jazz Pharmaceuticals, Lindbeck LLC, and Alexian Pharmaceuticals, agreed to pay a total of $122.6 million to settle allegations that they violated the False Claims Act by paying kickbacks to Medicare patients. The alleged kickbacks were disguised as charity payments from purportedly independent foundations. 
Medicare beneficiaries often are legally required to pay a fee in the form of a copayment of a deductible when they are prescribed medications. As this settlement demonstrates, drug makers reimbursing patients for these costs can run afoul of the anti-kickback statute. Broadly speaking, the anti-kickback statute prohibits healthcare providers, including pharmaceutical companies and medical device manufacturers, from paying or receiving kickbacks, remuneration, or anything of value to induce patients to purchase or use a company's drugs. The law seeks to prevent physicians prescribing medically unnecessary medications or recommending unneeded tests. The anti-kickback statute is also intended to ensure that a physician's medical judgment is not compromised by financial incentives and is solely based on the best interests of the patient. The specific allegations in this case differ slightly for each of the three companies. Jazz Pharmaceuticals allegedly asked a charitable foundation to create a fund that would cover co-pays for the purchase of Zyrem, a narcolepsy treatment. The foundation created a fund that would purportedly cover the copay for any narcolepsy drug, but in reality almost exclusively covered copays only for Zyrem. The government also alleged that Jazz asked the same foundation to create a second fund to help patients with severe pain. This fund almost exclusively assisted patients in paying for Prealt, another Jazz drug, and referred patients elsewhere for assistance in paying for competitors' drugs. Jazz will pay $57 million out of the total $122 million settlement. The government also alleged that Lundbeck ran a similar kickback scheme involving Xenazine, a treatment for Huntington's disease. Lundbeck donated millions to a charity fund that claimed to help all patients with Huntington's disease, but ended up exclusively funding co-pays for Xenazine. Lundbeck will pay $52.6 million. Both Jazz and Lundbeck consistently raised the cost of these drugs well above the rate of inflation during the time that the charity foundations were providing copay assistance. Alexian faced similar allegations concerning its drug, Solaris, which can cost over $500,000 a year and is used to treat certain diseases that affect red blood cells. Alexian allegedly set up a charitable fund to which it was the sole contributor, that assisted only patients that took Solaris, Alexian will pay 13 of the $122 million settlement. Unlike most cases I report on for Monitor Monday, this False Claims Act lawsuit was not brought by a whistleblower, but instead was brought by the government prosecutors themselves without the assistance of a whistleblower. That's it for me. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Mary. Calling in live from London was famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary is a partner in the London office of Constantine Cannon. The countdown has started for inpatient rehabilitation facility providers. One of the country's foremost IRF authorities, Angela Phillips, joins us now to report the urgency of this matter. Good morning, Chuck, and thanks for having me back to talk about this important topic this morning. While Earth continue to deal with audits from all areas, this morning I want to talk a little bit about some of the upcoming changes to the methodology for classifying patients into payment categories. As our listeners know, that CMG assignment has historically been driven by both the motor and cognitive FIM scores, with a greater emphasis on motor scores to assign patients uh, to a higher-paying CMG. 
In the final rule for fiscal year 2019, however, CMS included provisions to remove the FIM from the IRFPI and incorporate certain data elements from the quality indicator section into the classification system in order to assign patients to a case mix group for payment. As the transition date of October 1 approaches, it's important for us to be finalizing our preparation and training for that transition. And there are a couple of key things we should be addressing now as we count down to the final date. The change applies to discharges on and after October 1, 2019. As always, with a change that occurs related to discharge, patients will start and stop before and after that date. So EARTH must continue to collect both the quality indicator and the FIM data for patients who will be discharging around the transition date to assure that adequate data is documented and available to support billing for patients who are discharged around this time frame. Second, EARTH should note that while we've been collecting quality indicator data for functional status for several years, there's some significant difference in how scores are captured compared to the FIM, and refocusing our efforts toward accurate scoring is essential for a successful transition. It's simply not enough to stop collecting FIM scores and assume all is well. It's very important that we get the scoring right. While the scoring definitions for the GG functional components are similar to those for the FIM, the process is very different. FIM data is collected utilizing the lowest score over the first three days of the patient admission based on individual or discrete episodes, and the lowest score is selected and recorded. GG functional components also have a three-day assessment period, but, and it's a big but, CMS has been clear that the score should reflect the patient's usual baseline performance at the time of admission and before the patient has made progress due to therapeutic intervention. This is key. We're not looking for the best or worst performance, but the usual baseline before therapeutic interventions begin and progress is made. So while we have three days to complete the assessment, it is likely that we will not utilize the entire assessment period for all areas being measured. In some cases, the assessment could take up to three days. Stair climbing and car transfers are good examples of this as we may not do those in the first day or two of the stay. But in other cases, the assessment might be completed on the day of admission. Rolling right and left in bed or completion of the basic interview of mental status are good examples. These activities occur and we may do interventions to improve them. So communication between departments becomes critical in obtaining an accurate baseline score. Some tips for success. One, take a step back. Review your current processes for determining when the assessment is completed and therapeutic interventions have begun. It might just be sooner than you think. Two, consider scripting how assessments are approached and standardize how staff complete evaluations and do the initial scoring. Do it the same way every day across all services. Three, Focus on how communication between caregivers, particularly nursing and therapy staff, occurs to identify when the assessment is completed and interventions begin. 
And four, take advantage of CMS-offered online and in-person training sessions as well as those by your software providers to assure staff competence in scoring these key items. And make sure staff understand the perspective is slightly different. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Angie, very much. That was Angela Phillips. Angie's one of the country's foremost IRF authorities, and she's president of Image and Associates. With the courts now finding that Medicare reimbursements are property right, could disallowing an appeal process for a decrease in Medicare payments be deemed unconstitutional? Healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel is here with our lead story. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning and happy tax day. My segment today explores whether the hospital-acquired condition reduction program is unconstitutional. Hospitals are losing Medicare reimbursements. CMS data shows more than half the nation's hospitals will be penalized in federal fiscal year 2019. Under the Hospital Readmission Reductions Program, and 800 U.S. hospitals will be affected adversely by the hospital-acquired conditions reduction program. The HACC reductions program began in fiscal year 2015 and focuses on three measures. One, patient safety indicators. Two, central line-associated bloodstream infections. And three, catheter-associated urinary tract infections. The question is, are these penalties constitutional? 42 CFR Section 412.172 under Section G has the limitations on review, and there is no administrative or judicial review allowed under this section for the following. One, the criteria describing applicable hospitals. Two, the applicable period. Three, the specification of hospital-acquired conditions. And four, the provisions of reports to hospitals and the information made available to the public. Well, there's this thing in America called due process. Due process is the universal guarantee in the Fifth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which provides that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, and is applied to all the states by the 14th Amendment. As I reported last week, courts have finally begun to understand and hold that Medicare reimbursements for services actually rendered and medically necessary are property rights. Why is that important? If you don't have a right to something, whatever it is, then you don't have a right to due process. Under numerous Supreme Court holdings, most notably the court's holding in Board of Regents versus Roth, the right to due process under the law only arises when a person has a property or liberty interest at stake. In determining whether a property interest exists, a court must first determine that there is an entitlement to that property. Unlike liberty interests, property interests and entitlements are not created by the Constitution. Instead, property interests are created by federal or state law and can arise from statute, administrative regulations, or contract. Courts have found that Medicare providers have a property interest in Medicare reimbursements 
when services are actually rendered and are medically necessary. The argument is that the provider appeals process creates a due process property interest in Medicare reimbursements. If, in fact, Medicare reimbursements are property rights for healthcare providers, as per my theory and numerous courts decree, then the decrease in the Medicare reimbursement rates violate due process, which would render the hack reduction program unconstitutional. Another concern is disparate treatment. Are teaching hospitals considered fairly? What about larger hospitals? What about hospitals that are located in more Medicare or Medicaid regions or in areas that have high percentage of non-insured? In, in the hack reduction program, the hospital is penalized. So far, there has been no lawsuits that have been filed disputing the constitutionality of the hack reduction program. But I do believe that successfully hospitals could litigate this in the future and possibly render the hack reduction program unconstitutional. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a member of the Rack Monitor Editorial Board and she's a partner in the Potomac Law Group. And you can read her fascinating story in this Thursday edition of the Rack Monitor News. Now it's time for the Monitor Monday Q&A, and once again, here's David Glazer. David, what do you think? So thanks, Chuck. First, a couple questions for uh, Dr. Seward. So first, if people want to find these guidelines, where do they, where, how can they do that? They can look on the American Hospital Association website, aha.org, and the guidelines are called Redesigning Care. If a physician is providing services, they're sitting in one state, say Indiana. The patient is in California. Do they have to be licensed in California, in both states? You know, do they have to be licensed where the patient is? The simple answer is yes. The physician has to be licensed where the patient is sitting and receiving care. Although I understand that you may have a, a more um, interesting answer to that question. I think it's an evolving state right now, but certainly your answer is definitely the safest. Mary, do you think waiver of copayments is a problem if a patient is poor? You know, is the case you're talking about set a precedent that means you can't waive the copayment for a poor patient? No, I don't think it should be read that way. And in fact, it's it's very rare. And in fact, in an OIG, HHS OIG advisory, they have made the point that they have never brought a case based on a hospital's bona fide discounting or waiver of his copay to deal with patients of limited means. So this is a case you have to obviously for a kickback show that something of benefit is being given to entice someone for um, an unnecessary service or an overvalued service. That is certainly, while I'm sure we could create a fact pattern where that could happen in a hospital, I think when you're just, for legitimate reasons, trying to help with a patient, a beneficiary who cannot afford services, I think you're quite in the clear. Thank you so much, Mary, and I'll turn it back to you. Happy Tax Day. Thanks, David, very much. That's going to be a wrap for us, and I want to thank you very much for being with us today. And special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, whom you just heard, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Mary Inman, Angela Phillipson, the newest member of the Rack Monitor Editorial Board, Dr. Kathy Seward. I want to thank you for starting off your week with us this morning, and we look forward to your being with us next Monday for another live edition of Monitor Monday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you again for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.